Morning, everybody. We know what today really is, the opening of fishing season. And Mother's Day. I thought I'd get a better response than that. All the fishermen are gone. We're glad that you are here. And I want to add my uh, thanks for all the moms who are here. And um, really, as Kyle said, for all of our ladies. And I know that today can be a struggle for those who've recently lost a mom. And I pray that God will comfort you. And I know it can also be a struggle for those who want to be moms and for whatever reason have been unable to. And I pray that God would also comfort and give you courage as you deal with that challenge. Today, we want to deal with the second objection to Christianity in our series, Christianity, Really? Last weekend, we looked at the objection that Christianity is too exclusive. This weekend, we want to look at the objection that says, if God is good and loving and all-powerful, why does he allow evil and suffering? Now, I know when I say that, some of you who perhaps weren't aware of our series or were and forgot and are reminded are thinking to yourself, really, on Mother's Day? I mean, can't we have something a little bit more lighthearted, something more joyful, extolling the virtues of motherhood or something like that? And I want to remind you that throughout history, probably no group has suffered more than women, than women. They have been treated to this very day as second-class citizens, viewed as objects, sold and bought to this very day in many countries, even our own, as, as sex slaves, etc., and have been greatly oppressed. Women, perhaps more than any other group, understand what suffering is all about. And so perhaps on this day, hearing from God on the issue of evil and suffering will bring some sense of comfort in knowing that God is aware that God's in control, and that God has a purpose for your life. So it doesn't matter really who we are. We all, we all touch, we all experience suffering. We all know what evil is about. Male, female, doesn't matter. And when you ask the question, if God is so loving and good and powerful, why is there evil and suffering, you feel kind of backed into the corner. Because on the one hand, if God truly is loving and good, it must mean then that he's not all-powerful because a good and loving God in our logical minds wouldn't allow evil and suffering. So now we have a deity who's not all-powerful. What do you do with that? Or if we say, no, God really is all-powerful, then the logic of the human mind would say, well, then he's not very loving and kind. He must be evil. He must be mean. That he would allow this to continue and go on. But what if it's different? What if God is not the cause of evil and suffering? What if that evil and suffering comes from somewhere else or from someone else? Then it's a really different story, isn't it? And that's what I believe. I believe that evil and suffering is not the product of God, but is the product of humanity, of our rebellion against God. Listen to what it says in James chapter 1, verse 12 and uh, excuse me, verse 13. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So how did we become evil? How is it that we have caused the universe to be broken, so to speak, and to usher forth the kind of suffering that we see all around the world today? It's because we rebelled 
against God. Say, so well, when did we rebel against God? When our first parents did, and we're all their descendants, and we know their descendants because we have that same rebellious nature. I don't know how else you explain it. We have broken God's moral absolute. We've all decided to be our own God. You say, well, I don't know if I really believe in a moral absolute, a universal truth or code to live by. Well, if that's the case, then you really have some problems. There's Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights leader, who once said, you cannot evaluate a human law. You can't determine if it's just or unjust, good or bad, unless you have a divine law to measure it against. If you don't, then what is good? What is bad? What is evil? What is right? What is wrong? What is just? What is, unju what is unjust? Fyodor Dostoevsky, the philosopher and novelist, has one of his character, Ivan Karamazov, say this. If there is no God, then everything is permissible. Then everything is permissible. And so, therefore, what you call evil and suffering, I might consider success and survival, because that's what it boils down to, survival of the fittest. And the weak always lose. And the aggressive and the strong and the dominant, they always win. I mean, that's very humanistic, it's very evolutionary. When you think about it that way. Well, the reality is, if you take God out and say, well, there's suffering and evil in the world, so I just don't believe in God, take God out of the equation, and you still have evil and suffering left. And in that case, the only place you can pin it down to is us, human beings. And that's the cause, I believe, of the evil and suffering that we see in the world today. But the good news is, God doesn't stand outside of it. Because I believe God exists, hope you do too. What God does is God actually intervenes in the evil and suffering that we've created and offers us a way through it and a way eventually out of it. And that's what we're going to look at this weekend. Because I believe God can take what man tries to do for suffering and evil. God can take those circumstances and God can actually use those circumstances for his good and his glory and our benefit. You say, I got to see that because I'm suffering right now. So I like to see how the suffering I'm going through with my cancer, with my financial loss, with my other issues, how that can bring anything good out of my life. Well, I'm glad you want us to do that. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, would you please? 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is speaking to a group of people who were well acquainted with evil and suffering, the early Christian followers, the early church. And here's what he says in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now watch verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, 
Though now for a little while you, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These accounts that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, in other places the Bible uses silver, of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by the fire may result in praise, glory, honor in Jesus Christ until Jesus Christ is revealed. So what Peter in essence is saying is this, look, we live in a sinful world. There's suffering in this world. Our bodies are broken, the universe is broken, the environment is broken by sin. People are broken. But listen, God can take that brokenness, God can take the suffering and evil, and he can do a good thing in your life. He uses it to refine you. How does he do that? Well, June Hunt, who's a Christian counselor, talks about the six stages of, of refinement. And I want to go through those with you. And so we've got the board out here. Uh, it has come back because of popular demand, mine. And uh, we're going to draw with Dale. So get your paper and pencils ready, your Crayolas, beg, borrow one off of your neighbor. And let's, let's look through these six stages together. Now, the first stage, if you want to jot this down, is the breaking stage. All right? Let's all say the word breaking together. One, two, three. Breaking. So we're all on the same page. Okay? And I want you to draw under it your version of a piece of ore. Okay? O-R-E. And let's imagine that our ore has within it some gold or silver, precious metal, and it is worth money, and we want to extract that silver and gold out of our piece of ore. How are we going to get it out of there? Because there's other minerals, there's tin, there's copper, there's zinc, there's trash in there. Well, what we have to do is we have to break the ore up into chunks or into pieces. Well, suffering has a way of breaking us. And when that breaking happens in our life, it is that something good will be extracted out of us. And I know right now some of you are thinking to yourself, man, I can't wait for you to unpack this because I just can't see how anything good can come out of what I'm going through. Well, let's look at some scripture as we move through each stage. This breaking stage in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29 says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? And like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces, God's word is what breaks us. Because God's word confronts us, corrects us, instructs us, guides us. And it's what begins to kind of pull our life apart. It begins to give us understanding and direction with what God wants to do with us. Which takes us to the next stage. And what I want you to do is I want you to jot down the word crucible. All right? Crucible. And then I want you to draw your best version of a crucible. Now, I'm known for the crucibles that I draw. All right? So there's my crucible. That was a joke. All right? And if you, how many of you took chemistry? Remember chemistry? Right? You, you put the chunks in the crucible, and then, then you put the heat under the crucible. And it begins to further now separate the particles that you've put in there so that we can get at that gold and silver that we're looking for. And so sometimes, you know, our suffering becomes like a crucible. And the heat starts. We, we begin to suffer and the suffering doesn't let up. Listen to what the scriptures say in Proverbs 17.3. And I think we have it for you on the bottom. So let's read it aloud together. You ready? The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold. 
but the Lord tests the heart. So in the crucible, in a sense, God is testing us. Are we going to be faithful to him? Are we going to hang in there with him? Do we believe that God is going to bring something good and, and, and something important out of this? Now, the next word I want you to draw up here is the word dross, D-R-O-S-S. And you have to draw a crucible again, all right? And this time, the dross, as the heat is heating up our crucible and the particles are separating, the dross becomes the impurities that rise to the surface. And the refiner will take and skim carefully, skim off those impurities. Well, the impurities that we're talking about here are sin, are, are habits that need to go. The impurities are anything we trust other than God. Because in order for us to get to the gold and silver, or in other words, in order for God to bring out of us what is truly very precious, which we'll discover in a little bit, he has to remove everything else that we might be trusting in. Our wealth, our success, our abilities, our talents, our connections, our network, etc. God wants us to be in a place where we're entirely surrendered to him and to him alone. And so, Proverbs 25, 4, let's read that aloud together. Ready? Remove the dross from the silver and the... We're going to start all over, okay? Here we go. This is tricky. I see it down here. Do you see it up there? Let's try it one more time. Ready? Remove the dross from the silver and a silversmith can produce a vessel. And the silversmith can produce a vessel. So, as... As the particles are being removed, as impurities are being removed, and the gold and the silver begins to emerge, the gold or the silver, now I've got something as a refiner that I can work with to form, you know, in this setting, this illustration, the vessel that I want. As God begins to remove the impurities out of our life, he now can begin to truly shape and mold our lives. But let's go to a fourth phase. And this one, I want you to write down the word heat. The word heat. And yes, you're going to draw another crucible. Now, by the end of the morning, you will be able to draw crucibles perfectly. All right? Now, the idea here is that you've got the heat, but now the heat is being turned up. Because there are some particles that will not separate unless there's a greater amount of heat that's added to it. And the passage of Scripture I want to look at is Proverbs, excuse me, Psalm 12, verse 6. Let's read it aloud together. And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Now, when I read that, I thought about a story in the Bible, Daniel chapter 3. Daniel the prophet had three friends. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar had built this huge statue out of gold in the plain of Shinar. And he said to them and to all the people, I want you to bow down to my statue. Which in essence what he's saying is, I want you to bow down to me because I feel like I'm a god. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down. Would not do it. And it made Nebuchadnezzar angry. And he said, if you don't bow down, I'm going to build a furnace and throw you in it. They said, you can throw us in the furnace if you want. God may or may not deliver us. It doesn't matter. We are not bowing down to you. We believe so much in God that he's the God of the universe. 
And so Nebuchadnezzar had this huge furnace, big enough that you could walk through it. And it says that he heated it up seven times the normal heat. And then he threw them in there, and when he looked into the furnace, expecting them to have disintegrated upon contact, he looks and he sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking in the furnace with a fourth person who looks like an angel. And when they come out of the furnace, not a hair on their head has been singed. God was with them in the furnace. Same thing is true in your life and my life. Sometimes God turns the heat up in our suffering to get us to that place where we eventually say, I have no one, I have nothing left but God and God alone. And oftentimes, we'll say that with a sense of despair. I only have God left. Think about that for a minute. If you only have God left, do you have enough? You have more than enough, right? And oftentimes, it takes getting rid of a whole lot of other stuff to teach us about the presence of God. And so, in my life, and I, I, my wife's life, Marsha, we have known people who have gone through Terrible, terrible times of suffering. But in spite of the suffering, there's not been bitterness in their life. There's been a strange sense of thankfulness. Though they would not wish it again or ever wish it on somebody else. Where it has brought them in terms of the relationship with God, they would not have known otherwise. They would not have known otherwise because of the heat. So, I want us to look at the next stage, and I just want you to write the word purification. Purification. And yes, draw a crucible again. All right? Got your heat going there. But this time, I want you to draw a little face, okay? Eyes and a smile. All right? That's the refiner. The refiner is looking at the crucible. The refiner pulls it in and out of the fire because they're looking for something to emerge. And what they're looking to see emerge in it is an image. But the problem is there's still some impurities that have to be removed before that image can really be seen to know that the process is done. So let's read together Job 23, verse 10. Here we go. He knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Now, Job knew something about suffering. Have you ever read his story? Job is saying, I'm going through suffering. I don't know why I'm going through suffering. I've tried to live the best I can. But for whatever reason, God's allowing me to go through this. But I know that when I'm finally out of the furnace, I'm going to be gold. I'm going to be the vessel that God is using this to shape me to become. And so when we're going through suffering, God uses this process to purify us because he's looking for an image, which takes us then to the last stage and the last crucible that you'll draw today, all right? And I want you to write on top of that reflection, reflection. And then I want you to draw that face again over here, the refiner's eyes and a smile. And what the refiner finally looks for and is able to see 
is his reflection in the crucible. And when the refiner can see his reflection in the crucible, the journey is complete. In other words, what God is doing is God is taking what we create, evil and suffering and hardship, and God says, I'll use that for good. I'll use that in your life to get you to trust me, to let go of the world, let go of yourself. And my eventual goal is that you will finally so trust me that all that will be left is me in you. And when that happens, you will have your greatest joy and you'll be my greatest witness. And that's how God uses suffering oftentimes in our lives. And so one last passage of scripture, Isaiah 48, 10. Let's read it aloud together. See, I have refined you. Though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. But I want you to know that it's more than just what I experience right now. Suffering is more than just, okay, God's using this in my life to bring out his presence in me. I see that, okay? We have to remember when we're going through suffering that God has also promised us a great future. A great future. Let's go back to the passage of Scripture again. Because, you know, when I'm suffering, I look for meaning. And if I can accept the meaning is that God is going to bring his presence out of my life, I can deal with it. But I also want to know that someday my suffering will end. That suffering in this, in, this universe will end. Look what it says in 1 Peter. Let's read chapter three, or chap, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1 again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the promise and assurance to every one of us that what Jesus did on the cross for us has been successful, has been accomplished. On the cross, he took our shame, our guilt, our condemnation. He died our death for us so that if we put our faith in him, we're forgiven. The debt is removed. We are set free. And when I put my faith in Christ, he comes to live in my life through the presence and power of his Holy Spirit. That sets me up for something exciting because the resurrection of Christ is not only assurance of what God did for me on the cross through his son, but it's the assurance of what God's going to do for me after I die. That I too am going to have a resurrection. I'm going to have a resurrection body just like his. Look at verse 4 and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So when I die in this world, Paul tells me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that my body is put in the earth. I die. In other words, I go back to the dust. My body has a timer on it. It's winding down. It's a, it's a body that's decaying. It's a body that won't last forever. And so Paul says, it's like a seed. You plant it in the ground, it dies, but then it gives birth to an entirely new plant. So it is true with our resurrection. When the Lord returns, we will receive a brand new resurrected body that won't have a timer on it, that won't be subject to disease, that can't be afflicted, that cannot be injured. It's a promise to us. And in between the day we die and the time Christ returns, the Bible teaches us that our spirit goes to be with God. 
that we are conscious in what's called paradise. Remember what Jesus said to the thief who was on the cross next to him, who said, remember me? Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. You'll be conscious with me. So your loved ones, your mom who went before you, who knew Christ as her Savior, and others are alive and conscious in the presence of God. I can't imagine anything better. And when Christ returns, we get a brand new body. That's what we have to look forward to. Now, if you really believe that, if you are a sincere follower of Christ, then the wonderful hope we have is that life is more than one dimension. It is more than just now. And that's where a lot of us get stuck. I get stuck there sometimes too. We think about what's happening to us now and we just begin to look at ourselves and feel sorry for ourselves and we begin to feel like, you know, I've been dealt a bad hand. You weren't dealt a bad hand. You've got it made. You've got money. You've got success. You've got talents. But look at the hand I was dealt. Woe is me. What a horrible life I have to live. Because our attitude is this is it. The grave and that's it. That's not God's perspective. I like what Dostoevsky said. He said, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small. What that philosopher novelist is saying basically boiled down is this. Someday when I get on the other side, I'm going to look back at everything I went through in this life and I'm going to say, that was nothing. That was a hiccup. That was a blink in time compared to all that I know and I now realize. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that in your heart? I think a lot of us call ourselves Christians and probably are Christians, but we don't live like that. We believe like this is the end right here. This is life. And after this, we're pretty hopeless. We're pretty doubtful there's anything else. And that's why we get sucked into materialism. That's why we get sucked into sin and habits and looking in all the wrong places. Because we think this is it. And I'm telling you what, if this is it, life's a bummer. (laughs) They're just a lucky few. It's a huge gamble. But if there is a God, and I believe there is God, and what he says is true, and I believe it's true, man, there's a lot to look forward to. And in the meantime, God's saying, we're going to use suffering in your life to shape you, to form you into the person I want you to be. But listen carefully. It's not like God says, I'm, I'm going to use suffering to bring myself out of you It's not like God is just simply saying, and by the way, hang in there because there are great days ahead down the road. God says, when you're in the crucible, you're not alone. I'm with you. When did God ever enter a crucible? The answer to that question is on the cross. When Christ went to the cross, he entered the crucible of evil and pain and suffering. God knows what evil is like. God knows what suffering and pain is like. He endured it for us. He was the only way to get us out of it. He had to endure it. And he knew, he knew when he created us, he'd have to endure it. Because he knew what we would do, and he still made a way for us. And he died our death and took our sin and condemnation on himself so we could be loved and we could be forgiven and so we could live out Genesis 1 and 2 someday. 
That's why Peter says in the second Peter, in the second letter, in the third chapter, in verse 12 and 13, that someday God is going to overhaul the whole universe. We're going to have a new earth and a new heaven and new bodies. Doesn't get better than that. Doesn't get better than that. And that's what we have to look forward to. But you know what? Even now, in the crucible, I'm not alone. Remember what David wrote? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Finish it for me. For thou art with me. He said that very sadly. Okay? I'll try it one more time. I'll, walk, I'll try walking this way. Maybe that will help. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou now, that was what was true for David in Psalm 23. But since Christ has come, and Paul tells us when we receive Christ that, that the Spirit of God comes into us, Paul says, know ye not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that he indwells you? If you're a follower of Christ, God indwells you. Now, some of us need to let him out. <laughs> but he indwells you. Some of us have him compartmentalized, contained, and we're grieving his presence, but he indwells you. I can say, yea, though I walk the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are in me. In me. You see, it's him in me. That's the image God's trying to bring out of me. And that's what life is all about. Hear me, American Christians. I'm talking to myself, too. We think life is about success, money, fame, fortune, driving the right car, living in the right house, making the right income, getting on varsity, getting in the right university, being like, being loved, being popular. That's what we think life is all about. I hate to break this to you. That's not what life is about. And that's why some people would check out of Christianity. Okay, if it's not about them, they don't want it. It's the kind of world we live in. I don't know, is American Idol still on television? All right, listen carefully. Life is not about me. Life is about Christ in me. And you will never be more successful. You will never be more happy. You will never be more joy-filled than the day you come to grips with that and experience his presence carrying you, yes, even in the crucible. Now, it's easy for me to stand up here and diagram this out and talk about it and say, hey, you know, we created, you know, suffering and evil exist because of mankind's rebellion. It affects our bodies. It affects our environment. It affects our relationships. And I can say God is with you in it. And I can say there's a future. Don't worry. Someday we'll be free of it. But when you're actually living in this, that's hard. It's hard to trust. You know, sometimes we need the stories of people who are here to help us with our own crucible. To remind us when we enter into that crucible how to endure it. And so we want to we want to share a story of someone in our Whitdale family, a young lady by the name of Kate, who's going through her crucible right now, and with her, her lovely family. And I just want you to listen to her story as she tells it, because it's as powerful 
as any drawing or explanation I could ever give. Let's watch the screen. Nothing ever prepares you to hear the words, your daughter has cancer. I always thought sickness and suffering happened to other people's families, to other people's kids, not mine. Three months ago, our life was turned upside down when our daughter was diagnosed with leukemia. I remember thinking, how could this be? She was completely healthy. We were just at the hockey rink the day before. And now, not only were we told that she had leukemia, but she had a rare form of leukemia that would require that she would be in the hospital for the next two and a half to three months while she underwent chemo treatment. Why me? Why, God, did you let this happen? I feel like part of my life is kind of on delay. I can't go to school, I can't play sports, I can't really hang out with my friends. So that's been one of the hardest things. As a mom, the hardest thing is to see your child suffer. Because when you see them suffer, you suffer. You want to take the pain away, but you realize that there's nothing that can take that pain away. All you can do is be there to hold their hand, to tell her it's going to be okay. My mom always tells me just to live day by day, like one day at a time. She's really supportive and she's always there. She normally um, stays in my room like with me overnight and so it's really nice just to have somebody to like be with and to like talk to. I realize that through Kate's suffering, the only thing that I can do is to pray for God's perspective because if you allow despair to creep into your life, it will take over. And your hope really, truly comes from the Lord. We have gone through every emotion that you might imagine, fear, anxiety, despair, frustration, anger. There's been so many times where I've asked God to step in and intervene. Isn't there a way he could step in and make this pain and suffering go away for Kate? Last year, if you would have asked me, I would have said, of course he's good, of course he's great. And now I look at things with a different perspective. Just because my daughter is going through amazing um, suffering and a challenging situation, that doesn't change the character of God. And I really have to struggle to grasp that and understand it. I think through my suffering, God has just changed everything for me and my family. He has shown us a new perspective. He has grown us as not only Christians, but as people. And I think because I have been going through this and since, ever since I've been diagnosed with AML leukemia, I know that I personally am a different person. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know as we start this new journey of a bone marrow transplant, what is going to happen. I do know that through the suffering, God sustains us. I know that His mercies are new every day.
and he gives us his hope.